You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senator Maisie Hirono, who led the push for the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act that recently passed the Senate, joins the Post to discuss the legislation in her new memoir. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Nakamura, a reporter here at the Post. And joining us uh, this afternoon for a very important conversation and part of one of our series of conversations around Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month is Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. And uh, many of you may know, but the senator uh, is the first Asian woman elected to the Senate and the first and the only immigrant uh, currently serving in that body. So, uh, Senator Hirono, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon and aloha, David. Aloha to you back. Uh, we do appreciate your time, and I wanted to get started by talking about something that's been in the news uh, quite a bit lately uh, for all the wrong reasons, something I have certainly been writing about and you've been working on on Capitol Hill, as our introductory video mentioned, and that is this reported rise in anti-Asian hate incidents. Um, the bill that you helped champion through the Senate with remarkable bipartisan support last, mo last month, the uh, COVID-19 uh, Hate Crimes Act, would be a first step in sort of addressing this. And it basically instructs the Justice Department uh, to name an official to expedite a review of every uh, uh, hate incident or crime that is, is uh, mm -hmm. logged through the federal government, and also would incentivize, I think, local uh, law enforcement agencies to do a better job on their end of tracking these. Tell us in your own words a little bit more about the bill and what impact you think it really can have uh, in addressing this spike uh, in anti-Asian hate um, you know, if it does become law. I'm waiting for the House to take the bill up uh, very quickly when they reconvene. The bill has two major, I think, impacts. One is that it, it gave the Senate the uh, opportunity to stand up uh, with the AAPI, with the API community to say that these kinds of hate crimes have no place in America. The second thing is from a very practical standpoint, as you say, it is a step toward reporting these kinds of crimes and incidents very much underreported. So when this official from the Department of Justice works with the state and local law enforcement, it is to enable them to set up an online process to report these kinds of crimes and incidents so that we have a better database from which to determine what else we can do. And just because this bill gets enacted doesn't mean that hearts and minds will follow because obviously, uh, there is animus toward the Asian um, American Pacific Islander community that has been in our country for a long time. So there are other things we all should be doing to call attention to this kind of uh, um, hatred in our country. Uh, the Justice Department is undertaking their own review. Uh, Merrick Garland has instructed his staff to undertake 30 days uh, to assess how they deal with this issue of trying mm -hmm. to track uh, and potentially prosecute uh, hate crimes from the federal level. Uh, have you had discussions directly with uh, Merrick Garland or anyone else at the Justice Department about their review and what could come of that? When Merrick Garland was before our Senate Judiciary Committee, I asked them about whether or not they are uh, paying attention to hate crimes in our country, particularly as we were seeing a rise in these kind of crimes against Asian Americans. He said, yes, he is. And so he has taken steps, the president has uh, taken steps to uh, for us to recognize that this is a an issue that we need to contend with. 
Uh, you know, you make a great point, which is that the, the FBI has uh, logged hate crime incidents since 1990 under federal law, but they have a great deal of difficulty because local uh, police agencies, of which there are uh, 18,000 mm -hmm. across the country, don't often do a great job in collecting these and reporting these uh, to the federal government. Um, I'm curious, from your perspective, um, there has been, you know, both an outcry for better tracking of these crimes and better prosecutions, I think, especially mm -hmm. from Asian American leaders. But that's, you know, sort of butted up against another issue, which is that this outcry last summer that we saw, led by Black Lives Matter and other civil rights groups about police brutality, uh, mm -hmm. uh, leaders of those movement have, have expressed caution uh, about focusing on hate crimes and other sort of, uh, you know, criminal justice responses in some cases to what is happening. Although they've said it's important to have accountability, they're concerned that a greater emphasis on hate crimes could potentially lead to harsher sentences, to uh, uh, police profiling of racial community, uh, minority communities, uh, and have pointed to studies that say hate crime, uh, new hate crime laws uh, sometimes rebound uh, negatively uh, against the communities they're potentially there to serve, uh, and that is minority communities. Uh, you've said that your, your legislation does not change any laws, that it's about tracking and counting no. some of these crimes. Have you talked to leaders about this particular uh, tension uh, in, the, in the sort of uh, social justice movement? And how do you sort of respond to concerns uh, about going down this path? I've heard the concerns expressed that somehow this is, uh, is going to pit one minority group against another for a prosecution of that. You're right that this bill does not change any of the existing existing statutes, uh, which, by the way, we know that these kinds of crimes are not only underreported, but they're underprosecuted, and we're not paying very much attention to uh, this issue in our country. And so I am hopeful that that is not what's going to happen. But if it does happen, then we need to deal with it. And, and if we have to change some laws to make sure that this kind of uh, disparate policing that targets minority groups uh, does not continue. Clearly, the black community is very aware of disparate policing, and, and that's why uh, when we talk about police reform, we need to pass the George Floyd um, Justice and Policing Act. But what would you like the, the, um, the federal government to do uh, with the data that might be collected uh, if your bill becomes law? I hope much of the data collection has to do with uh, raising awareness within our communities. There are a number of states that do not even have hate crime statutes. And uh, there needs to be, when I talk about awareness, look at what happened in Georgia, where the perpetrator got to create his own narrative as to what uh, prompted him. And uh, so there is a total lack of awareness as to, or not enough anyway, as to what constitutes a hate crime or incident. So that kind of community awareness, because part of the bill also includes advocacy, uh, grassroots advocacy groups and what they can do to prevent these kinds of crimes. So it's not just one bill, but it is much more, in my view, raising of an awareness and for people to understand that this is not the kind of, of uh, behavior that should be tolerated in our country. And let me just mention, I was talking with a business person, as you probably know, the a Asian American businesses have come together to to put in over $200 million to do their part to deal with and to prevent hate crimes against APIs. But I was talking with a business person that they, she is in a company that has thousands of employees and they are doing bystander training. And she says it, it does businesses no good if they have tensions within their own uh, company, 
if they have these these racial tensions. So what I'm seeing is a, a awareness and advocacy that is developing around this issue, but also uh, relating to what the black community has been facing for generations. Uh, you mentioned uh, the mass shooting in Atlanta and the, and the perpetrator, in your words, uh, being able to set his own narrative by telling authorities initially that he uh, was not aiming against Asian American, even though uh, mm -hmm. six Asian women, women of Asian descent, uh, were killed uh, among the eight people who were shot that, th uh, that day. Um, I'm curious, um, from your perspective, uh, Congresswoman Judy Chu, the head of the, uh, the Asian caucus in the House, has been very pointed mm -hmm. in calling that a hate crime. Uh, you seem to suggest that it may have been. Uh, do you see that as a hate crime? Yes. Yes. I think there's a hate crime element to it. I don't see how you can possibly uh, say that it, hate crime has nothing to do with it. And of course, it also has to do with uh, some notions about Asian women. Do you have a sense of where the, any kind of federal investigation into that crime stands and whether uh, today, we, you know, we're just hearing uh, the, the Justice Department has announced they will file uh, federal uh, civil rights charges against officers, uh, you know, in Minneapolis. I'm curious if you've heard of any uh, investigation into the, this mass shooting in Atlanta uh, and potential federal charges in that case along uh, civil rights lines. I hope that the Justice Department is taking a look at um, stepping in. Uh, in some way as uh, they're doing in Minneapolis. This is a justice department that is gonna follow the rule of law. And uh, when uh, Justice, when uh, Merrick Garland announced the pattern and practice investigations, that's something that the previous administration did not do. And so that is really one of the approaches, uh, really important ways that we can look at police reform. And when we reform by police, police then it's gonna impact communities uh, particularly minority communities all across our country. You know, one of the things I found in my reporting is a sense that there's a very real concern among Asian American leaders from Congress to, uh, to civil rights groups and elsewhere uh, about, you know, crimes or, or, or discrimination and prejudice happening against Asian Americans during the pandemic, a backlash uh, to the mm -hmm. idea that, you know, China uh, is where this uh, virus started and, and the rhetoric maybe of the former president and so on contributing to uh, this backlash. I've also got a sense, though, at this moment, as, as this has gotten some traction in the media and there's been attention drawn to some of these uh, crimes we've seen go viral, uh, that there is a bigger movement uh, trying to be developed. Uh, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about something that you also were involved in, which is um, you know, criticism of the Biden administration and the president himself of not naming a uh, you know, statutory cabinet member who is Asian American. There's 15 statutory cabinet positions. Uh, and I think the past you know, two decades uh, since uh, President Clinton, uh, there have been Asian Americans in uh, some of those cabinet positions, uh, mm -hmm. but President Biden did not do so, despite a very, very diverse cabinet that he named. You and Senator Duckworth, uh, you know, gained uh, quite a bit of attention for announcing uh, in March that you would oppose all of the mm -hmm. president's nominees, uh, who, uh, not of color, uh, uh, who, uh, because of, uh, that, of that fact, and because you had been in a meeting with some White House officials who seemed to not be quite as receptive to the idea, that they had not responded to this pressure. Can you talk about what led up to that uh, moment and, and why you had been so frustrated with the Biden uh, administration uh, and the president himself? As the President Biden announced his uh, cabinet nominees, uh, there were concerns already being expressed by API leaders that there were not enough uh, API uh, nominees. And so the, the position that Tammy and I took was not something that just came out of nowhere. It had been developing and uh, both she and I, I know for a fact that I had, and I know that she had contacted 
our, our liaisons in the White House to express our disappointment that uh, there were not more AAPI nominees. And so we finally took the position that uh, he needed to hear from us in a very clear way, and he did. And one of the things that we wanted was someone in the White House at a very senior level to be the advocate and, and a voice for AAPIs, and, and he did so by appointing uh, Erica Moritsugu at a very high level. We wanted at least this person to be a deputy assistant to the president. And so that was one. And then he is very well aware that uh, there, he could do better. And I can tell you one of the cabinet positions, although it's a, a deputy secretary position is Julie Sue of California, who I have pushed very hard to be named labor secretary. Not that I have anything against Marty Walsh, who is the current Labor Secretary, but she is up for Deputy Secretary. She may not get a single Republican vote. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that one or two Republicans may vote for her, but this is where we are. We need to do a lot better because, David, you know that when diverse faces are at the table making decisions, that it telegraphs to the entire country that diversity is not anything to be afraid of, that we should embrace it, and that diverse voices and opinions and views make for a better discussion, better decisions. You know, um, I'm curious, you mentioned Erica Moritsugu. She was uh, a staff member for Senator Duckworth. Um, I'm curious what assurances you've had about what influence she will have with the president. What was her, is her role in your mind? Have you been told by the White House um, and how much access she'll have <laughs> to the president? This is why we wanted the, her position title. I, I know that there is a hierarchy in the White House and uh, a deputy position is uh, really an important title to have. And I expect her to make the, the most of it. She does have a lot of relationships with the AAPI community, particularly uh, within the administration and in Washington, DC. However, there is a lot more that uh, she could do and I'm gonna do everything I can to help her succeed. What do you hope she does? Does she have a specific policy proposal or is it more vague? I think right now it's probably developing. <laughs> <laughs> um, terrific. Um, you know, one other uh, point on that. You know, one of the issues I know that uh, I think the, the you know you and, and Senator Duckworth and others had expressed concern about was the idea that uh, the response from the White House was often that the, the Vice President, uh, who of course is of South Asian mm -hmm. descent, uh, you know, is mm -hmm. a representative of that kind of Asian uh, diversity at the highest levels of the Biden administration. Your point was that's not enough. Uh, you wouldn't tell uh, the, the the Black Caucus <laughs> that. Hey, look, you got uh, Kamala Harris, uh, so yes. you know, rest assured, we get it. Um, you, you want more. Uh, this is an important issue. Uh, but I'm curious, I did write a piece about uh, uh, Vice President Harris. I'm curious if you've had these conversations directly with, with her about what kind of role she will take on and continue to take on uh, as a spokesperson and advocate for Asian American community writ large. When she was running for president, she was the first uh, Democratic presidential candidate, because of course the Republicans wouldn't have a platform on AAPIs. She was the first one to have a platform and, on AAPIs. And I congratulated her, I thanked her for that because at that point I was uh, texting her. And I know some of the people who uh, were involved in her formulating that platform. And so, yes, she has uh, more than an awareness. She's an advocate for the AAPI community. And uh, last year, she and I were co-sponsors of a resolution that condemning hate crimes against AAPIs. She and I were the two major sponsors of that piece of legislation. 
I wanted to switch uh, to talk a little bit about your recently published memoir, uh, Heart of Fire, <laughs> Thank an, immigrant you. Daughter's, <laughs> an Immigrant Daughter's Story, um, you know, which, uh, which has come out. And, um, you know, you it's, a, it's a really interesting book because you talk, uh, you know, it's really, it really is kind mm -hmm. of a, a story that charts uh, essentially the American dream. Um, of course, you, you came from Japan uh, as a primary school student uh, with your mother and older brother um, to Hawaii where you didn't even speak English. Uh, I'm curious if we can go back a little bit and reflect a little bit about that experience, mm -hmm. what it was like early on trying to adjust to a new culture. And I'm curious in this day and age, given where we are as a country uh, and the conversations we've had about what kind of country we are, what did, did you know, the United States mean to your mother? Um, <laughs> you know, she left Japan for personal reasons, but I'm curious what she believed in about the United States at that time. And also young Maisie Hirono, uh, how you as a young girl yeah. saw this country. My mother was born in Hawaii, and so for the first 15 years of her life, she spoke English. And for her to be taken basically pretty abruptly to a country that she didn't know, which was Japan, was a, a, a huge adjustment for her. But she finished school there, got married, all of that. And then, uh, but she had a happy childhood in Hawaii, in America, a country I knew very little about. And so her children, who were all Japanese nationals, when we came here, we came to a country that we knew nothing about. It was an adjustment. We didn't have things like English language classes or anything. You got plopped into a class and that's it, sink or swim. Um, and so the, the, the adjustment, the whole point was to <clears throat> acculturate. We were not encouraged to use our language or retain our culture. And I think that, that has changed in our schools. But it was an adjustment to just uh, not knowing what was going on, <laughs> especially in elementary school. I often didn't understand what the teacher was uh, asking of me. And the, the foods, that, that was something that um, I didn't necessarily talk about in the book, but I, I really had to adjust because in Japan, in the rural part of Japan where I was born, uh, we hardly, I don't remember ever eating meat. We might have chicken once in a while, but it was all pretty much uh, I would say fish and vegetarian. We ate what we grew. Um, and so the, 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 there were a lot of cultural differences, but being young, I was almost eight, children can adjust. And I had a very strong mother who was totally determined to uh, make a go of it with, uh, with a lot of, uh, I'd say, um, not much in, in material or uh, you know, any kind of a social safety net. We didn't even know what that meant. Sure. Um... You know, I was, yeah, but I'm curious about like what if, if the country took on a, some sort of um, ideal for your family in any way. Of course, Hawaii wasn't even a state when you uh, arrived, I think. Uh, it became mm -hmm. one a few years later. Uh, I, was, I asked that because mm -hmm. I'm wondering, given, you know, if you look back uh, at where you've come, uh, you've, you've succeeded to the highest level uh, from very modest beginnings. But does the country, has the country lived up to kind of how you viewed it or your mother viewed the potential opportunity here? Um, your family was leaving, a, you know, abusive uh, your mother's husband, who was uh, very abusive and so on, but so leaving for personal reasons. But I'm curious if uh, the country has lived up uh, fully to the ideals you, you know, you and your mother may have seen in it, um, you know, when you look back. Well, this country gave me opportunities I never would have had in Japan, that is for sure. I would never have been able to go to college. I certainly wouldn't have thought about running for office. I, I, it was a very rural part of Japan. So I know this country to be one that provides opportunities. That's why it called to millions and millions of people to come to our country for a better life. Truly, that, uh, uh, that is a, uh, uh, an ideal. That, that's the thing about ideals. You don't ever reach it, and our country has not. 
I recognize all of the shortcomings uh, as we try to uh, have a more perfect union. Uh, and so, you know, I don't look at my country with rose-colored eyes. I'm very aware of the shortcomings, but there are things that we can do, and we always need to reach toward that ideal. Uh, but very clearly, my mother changed my life by bringing me to this country. I never would have had the opportunities that uh, I had in this country in Japan. Uh, I wanted to ask about something else you write quite a bit about in the book, which is sort of overcoming uh, maybe limitations um, that others you know, may have placed on you as a minority woman, a Japanese uh, American woman, um, whether it be you know, pushing off marriage to a little bit later in life than typical expectations possibly, um, you know, to, to overcoming you know, uh, limitations that male politicians may have uh, sought to impose uh, and sort of push you aside and so on. Uh, you know, you served a long time uh, in politics in your, in your state uh, and of course uh, in Washington as well. Uh, you, you write in the book about, uh, you know, sort of uh, initial uh, interactions you had with Senator Barbara Mikulski, uh, a strong, uh, you know, outspoken uh, member of the Senate her, in her own right, uh, who you write a little bit about uh, sort of uh, talking that, and telling you that you needed to sort of get more outspoken, uh, something you took a little <laughs> bit of offense to, I think. Maybe you could tell uh, the viewers a little bit about that and kind of what you learned from that, what, what you, how you viewed it and what you learned uh, from that experience. I start by saying that I'm friends with Barbara and I continue to admire her. But uh, what she told me that day on the floor of the Senate, I reflected on it and it really was a, a stereotyped uh, view of Asians, uh, that we are very uh, soft-spoken, reserved, all of that. And, and sure, I exempted some of those kinds of behaviors because I come from a culture and a background where being vocal, being confrontational and and all of that is not rewarded, especially coming from a woman. I managed to get things done without being um, that way. But uh, I was also in an environment where being vocal and outspoken was um, expected and rewarded. So she, she suggested certain behaviors that I thought, you know, that I, I was taken aback. And when I had an opportunity to say to her that uh, she didn't know much about my own background, how long, how much it took for me to get to where I was. And she... Totally, she apologized and all that, but um, being vocal is something that a lot of Asian people are not. It's one of the reasons that hate crimes are very underreported. This is a community, you probably know, David, that is pretty reserved, keeping to ourselves. And even during the internment of World War II, the people who experienced that hardly ever talked about it, this horrible, dark time in our country. And so there are stereotypes of notions about Asians. I am the first Asian woman that my colleagues in the Senate have uh, faced. <laughs> sure, they have Senator Inouye, Senator, you know, other male uh, senators, Masanaga and all that, but never a woman. And so I think in the beginning, I was pretty reserved. Although the people who saw me at work on the immigration reform in 2013 saw my determination and how focused I was on the amendments that I put into that bill. So that's generally been my experience that I have been underestimated, especially by people who have not seen me at work. But now uh, I am exercising my vocal cords to a greater extent, David, and that's why I uh, was on a journey and I'm at the point where um, I will speak out and I speak very plainly. And, and I, know, I think I wanted, you know, uh, my... that's... <laughs> Go, Go ahead. You. 
you make great points. My, my, uh, my, my father was in the camps himself. He did not talk a great deal about it um, as much as I was interested to hear it. Um, so I understand your point. Um, you know, you mentioned the outspokenness, and I want to get to immigration uh, reform quickly in the, in the minutes we have left. But I did want to ask, you know, you mentioned the being outspoken. I read a story from 2019 in uh, the Hill, Hill newspaper saying that you sort of were electrifying the left because of your opposition to President Trump and some of his uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it also said that Republicans were calling you Crazy Maisie. You spoke out so much. Uh, I'm curious <laughs> how you took that nickname and, uh, and why it was, that's how, why I it was take, that that's how I take the nickname. It makes me laugh. <laughs> that's all they got. I like that. I, I don't know if Trump ever <laughs> called you that, but I'm curious what, you know, if you could tell. Oh, he has. Sort of, how, he did, yeah. He called, so, you know, how you, um, how you, why you thought it was so important to sort of speak out so, so forcefully, um, you know, in the Trump uh, era. Bullies need to be confronted, and over time I have confronted bullies, and so he was the biggest bully of them all. And I just saw him as the most, uh, um, uh, oh my God, I, I, I sometimes don't have the words, but uh, definitely when I called him a misogynist, a liar, a, an admitted sexual predator, all in one sentence, and that was before a spray, I think it uh, took the, the reporters who were in that spray aback, but I haven't stopped since. It's not as though I run around spouting off uh, anything like that. I think when the times called for it, and there were a lot of times because the Trump administration, every day there were attacks uh, on the body politic. And so um, I kept speaking up because we need to stand up against this kind of uh, corruption and yeah. the, the total lack of leadership on Let me ask you, uh, the former administration. Let me ask you, we're just running out of time here, but I wanted to ask about immigration. You mentioned it, uh, your work on it in 2013. I covered that quite a bit when uh, President Obama and, of course, the Senate passed the uh, bipartisan uh, immigration mm -hmm. reform. Is the idea of, bi uh, you know, a sort of a, a bipartisan, uh, big, comprehensive bill dead at this point, comprehensive immigration reform, where you trade uh, a bunch of measures on uh, sort of border security, sort of and package that with uh, measures in terms of a path for citizenship for undocumented immigrants, is that idea of a broad bipartisan bill dead, given we haven't seen it in uh, you know two or three decades now of efforts. That to say that the word immigration uh, triggers uh, uh, a negative, like no way Jose from, from I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that term. <laughs> okay, anyway, it, it, what it triggers is a total negative response from the Republicans. So I don't see uh, that much of a chance for comprehensive immigration reform, which is what we need because when we started working on that in 2013 and we had the self-defined um, uh, gang of eight working on it, everyone recognized, Republicans and Democrats, that the immigration system was broken. And that was really a good faith effort. I didn't agree with all of the uh, provisions of the bill, of course, but that was the last time that we were able to work on a comprehensive immigration reform. We couldn't even pass DACA, which is uh, much pro uh, supported by uh, the American people that these early childhood arrivals should have a a path to citizenship that that enables them to stay here, and and so to me DACA is a is a group of, of people who should have and has the support wide support and yet we couldn't even get that bill passed and that I totally placed in the in in front of uh, President Trump because when a group of us met with him way back when when he said bring me a bipartisan bill to uh, protect DACA participants, I'll sign it. And he totally reneged on that. This is why I call the Tuesday meeting. He said, yes, yes, I'll do it. By Thursday, that's all off the table. I call it the Tuesday, Thursday Trump. You can never count on him to keep his word.
I remember that quite vividly. We're down to the final question. I wanted to bring one in from sort of left field a little bit. Go back to your native Japan and ask uh, the Japanese government is preparing, it seems, to go forward with the Olympics. Do you support that decision given we're in the middle of this pandemic? And would you, uh, do you think American athletes and potential staff going over would be safe if they go forward? To me, Japan is a very cautious country. And for them to go forward with the Olympics means that uh, they uh, believe that they are providing the, the security and safety environment. And every country's participants will have to make a decision. And I would say that if enough countries' participants say that we're not going there, then they're probably going to review their decision to go ahead. Terrific. Uh well, Senator, um, thank you so much for your time. There's so much more uh, I would have loved to cover on all these topics, uh, uh, but you've been, uh, you know, very generous uh, with all of your time. Thank and, you. Uh, I wanted to thank you. thank you so much for joining us uh, here on this sort of virtual uh, Washington Post Live. Mahalo and aloha, really everyone. Stay safe. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> we, we wanted to thank uh, we wanted to thank everybody else who joined today for uh, joining in as well and. Uh, one programming note before we do leave, which is to join my colleague Tracy Jan next Friday at 2 p.m. Uh, for a conversation with Sonal Shah, president of the Asian American Foundation, uh, and Yahoo co-founder Jerry Yang, uh, who is a board member of that new organization. They'll talk about what uh, their agenda is and what they're going to try to do. So I'm David Nakamura. Uh, thanks again to the Senator Hirono uh, for joining us, and thanks uh, for all of you for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.